Oh, uh, and good news. You know that uh, woman who's suing you for groping and defaming her? I found the guy who's willing to threaten her kids. Yeah, that sounds great, Michael. Am I the only one that sees that guy? I think I figured out a loophole where they can't legally subpoena you. Uh, have you ever heard the phrase, faking your own death? Uh, yeah, sure, Rudy, we can look into that for sure. Dad, are, are you okay? Don't stop Welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party. This week we'll be discussing SNL's season 43 finale with host Tina Fey and musical guest Nicki Minaj. I'm John Murray and with me as always is comedy aficionado and all-around swell dude Steve Finn. If you'd like to connect with either of us, you can do so at snlafterparty.fm. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or rather Apple Podcasts. Your subscription helps us grow and your support is greatly appreciated. All right, enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, Tina Fey! Well, Steve, we are zero for two for our May guess. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's up to you if you want to admit that, but we have had some issues. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I don't think there's any getting around it because we announced it pretty heavily on the last couple casts that my intention was to meet up with Kendall Ketchum while I was in New York and do our finale cast live with her at a cafe in Greenwich village. And, uh, pretty much all of that happened. The only thing that I couldn't anticipate was that I was going to lose my voice the morning of the recording. Um, so Kendall catch to her credit. She was generous enough to show up anyways, and at least take a run at it with me. So I, I really applaud her for being classy and, and showing up, but it was pretty obvious right from the get go that my voice was just not going to be workable. And so we scrapped it and had a drink instead and called it a night. And, uh, <laughs> so that's why you and I are regrouping here Wednesday morning to do our coverage of the season finale with Tina Fey and Nicki Minaj. Yeah. Well, would have been nice to have Kendall, but. I'm sure we'll get to her again. Yeah, it is what it is. And and uh, she's definitely game to come back on. Before we jump into the show, though, I just want to thank the Cornelia Street Cafe for uh, their hospitality. They were kind enough to set us up in an empty dining room and they catered to us and just really were accommodating of my audio hardware and all the rest of it. Um, I also want to thank Kendall you know, classy lady. We will definitely have her up again in the future. If we can get everything lined up. Uh, she has some dates coming up in Chicago with Daryl Hammond in the summer. I'm not exactly sure what those dates are yet, but if anyone wants to learn more about Kendall Ketchum, they can always go to her website, which is kendallketchum.com. So very appreciative of her efforts. And it's a shame that it didn't work out. Ah, one of those things. Yep. Now that we're all bummed out, let's take a look at the season finale with Tina Fey and Nicki Minaj. All right. Okay. For our cold open, Trump's fate is left uncertain after a menacing encounter with Robert Mueller. We get appearances from Ben Stiller as Michael Cohen and Robert De Niro as Robert Mueller. Hey, you know, I'm a huge Sopranos fan. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite shows of all time. So as soon as Trump hit the the jukebox and that song came (laughs) on, I knew exactly what they were doing. Right. 
And just immediately, I thought it was perfect. You know, it's got a finale vibe, Mm -hmm. puts a bookend on things. I couldn't think of a better way to go out. This was a a really good, uh, good idea. Yeah, I thought it was really like thought provoking. You know, it was a, a fun thing to mull over after the fact once you realize that the gag is that they're trying to homage the Sopranos finale. The only thing that I think is a little ambiguous is really what it was saying much like the Sopranos finale where people have debated for a decade now uh you know what was the fate of Tony Soprano what were they trying to say with it do you have any like clever thoughts on really what their intention was by going with this sort of setup well I was thinking about that and I guess a lot of people are uncertain as to how this (laughs) is all going to play out sure like will Trump be impeached will anything come of this or will it be more of the same where nothing matters anymore right So, yeah, that uh, uncertainty of the future kind of mirrors the uncertainty (laughs) of that smash cut to black. Right, exactly. And that that really is kind of the genius of this, is that it lets it be whatever it's going to be to each individual. Anyone who wants to see Trump impeached immediately says, okay, well, this was it. This was our our fade out on Trump. And, you know, they're very hopeful that when SNL returns for season 44, Trump will not be part of the conversation. So it works for them, hopefully, for people that are just Sopranos fans straight up. It's just fun and charming. And for everyone else who has varying opinions of Trump and this whole situation and the Mueller investigation, they can just read into it however they want. Mueller's got his number or Trump's one up on him. Who knows? They can just interpret whatever they want. And I think that's just kind of a, a, a neat uh, way to to frame a Trump piece that they really haven't explored before. So I'm going to give them high marks for thinking outside the box on this one. Yeah. Yeah. No, high marks. And I think we should uh, admit that neither of us expected to see Robert <laughs> yes. De Niro back again. We thought that was a one and done yeah. for that meet the parents uh, spoof. Right. But here he is. So I guess we were wrong. Yeah. Yeah. The, the show never hesitates from capitalizing on what they've got at hand. Right. And so if they were game to come back, why wouldn't you use the star power as the show will heavily lean into in the monologue? So why don't we actually jump into that now? Yeah, they might touch on that. Yeah. In the monologue. <laughs> Maybe just a little bit. Tina Fey takes some questions from the audience with yet more appearances from Jerry Seinfeld, Benedict Cumberbatch, Chris Rock, Robert De Niro, Fred Armisen, Anne Hathaway, Donald Glover, and Tracy Morgan. This absolutely has to be an SNL record for celebrity cameos. And they bring them in intentionally to basically wink at, or, you know, shoot the bird at everyone who maybe has misgivings about the level of celebrity participation in the last couple seasons of the show. So what do you make of this? Was this fun or was this maybe a little tone deaf? No, it it was fun. And it was a, it was a really ballsy move (laughs) to actually take, real criticisms this is what people are saying about the show that there's too many cameos Mm -hmm. and to address it just do exactly that it's almost like you know get at me bro (laughs) kind of attitude for tina fey that's kind of how it felt yeah yeah Yeah, like they totally smashed us over the head with the thing (laughs) that a lot of us are annoyed by you know having on the show right and i just thought that was such a hilarious move because like if you can't laugh at yourself then what business do you have laughing at anyone else right I think it was funny that they challenged the audience to embrace the joke, even though it's kind of a raw thing for a lot of people. That's, that is a hard line to walk because you know that you're touching on something that is potentially going to turn them off before even a word comes out of your mouth, but they set it up. Well, Fred Armisen helped to really drive home the intention of the monologue. So I feel like they had a surprising amount of fun with it along the way. I think if you're on board with what 
the underlying joke was and weren't too turned off by just seeing more celebrities that it played really well. I, I thought it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. So much fun. I honestly think Fred Armisen's one of the world's funniest people. <laughs> Definitely my favorite part of it all. Yep. He showed really what one of his big gifts is in this, which is just stopping and letting it get uncomfortable. Yeah. And he just always seems to do it to perfect effect and know kind of when to come back in and how to like keep it casual. Like he's oblivious to the fact that he just like let all that dead air sort of suck the energy out of the room. So I always enjoy what he does when the intention is to kind of play with the audience a bit. So he was a, a really good person to bring in to help support this concept for the monologue. So there was a lot here that, that I was having fun with. Yep. Oh, absolutely. It was a win. It definitely was. All right, so let's take a look at our first live sketch. Prince Harry introduces us to some of the more colorful attendees at his wedding reception. You know what? This was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. I I really like these ensemble pieces. Uh, The one camera, one shot (laughs) traveling through the set gives, you know, a lot of variety. Yeah, it's uh, a little Sully and Denise-esque, right? The the handheld kind of being pulled through the scene by like a tour guide, almost kind of a format. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's perfect to touch on the the royal wedding Mm -hmm. and some of the black community intermingling with this royal wedding posh (laughs) type. Right. That made for a couple of funny jokes from Chris Red. Yep. Yeah. I just thought everyone was uh, absolutely great. Mm -hmm. Yep. It was a lot of fun. Uh, Enjoyed the Keenan versus the Queen bits there uh near the beginning of the sketch just you know two completely different energy levels and worlds apart uh so that was kind of fun just to see how uncomfortable the queen was kind of being interacted with by the you know the common riffraff yeah i liked some of that i loved the little back and forth between the brothers you know always like ribbing on each other and you know doing what brothers do that that all felt very good i wanted to point out though a little production flourish that i think was just amazing And that's when Mikey exits through the doors of the first room that he's in to discover, you know, another room full of his crazy relatives. That little gag is actually done by having him on a rotating platform and they spin him around and then he exits back into the room that he was already in before they spun him. That's how they did that. They didn't have two sets. They just very quickly redressed the first set while he was stalling for time at the door facing away from the set. And then when he comes back in, they've got all new players in place so that he can have, you know, a few more people to interact with. That's incredible. Yeah, that is absolutely incredible. It was very cool to see it live in the studio. But I got to say what even makes it a little bit better is that gag can fall flat if when they're turning the door around, if the lighting shifts and you see the shadows change on the door. And to their credit, they rigged it up so that you had some consistent lighting above him, which minimized the shift in the shadows as he was going around. So it was almost imperceptible. Uh, If you were just watching it on TV and you weren't paying attention, I bet there's a lot of people that genuinely thought that they had two separate sets or some other way of getting him back in the set without realizing that, no, they just literally spun him around. So that was very, very cool. And I I just, I always find it amazing when SNL finds those uh, quick and dirty means of capitalizing on the limited space that they have for a sketch like this. Yeah. Was totally undetectable from a home other than the fact that it was suspiciously a lot of room (laughs) to explore on 8H. So that was the only thing that was making me kind of be like, okay, something's on the go here. Right, right. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Wow. What a really innovative way of creating more space for your sketch. 
And apparently that gag is credited to Steve Higgins. Apparently when they were, you know, figuring out the the staging for that, he was the one who said, here's how you do it. You know, here's how we, we cram two sets into one set. And uh, that's pretty cool that he's been around the block long enough to have that at arm's reach when you really need to throw it into the production. So good on him. So this has been done before. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's been done many times, but you need someone that's been around long enough that it overlaps with, you know, the various areas where they may have had to deploy that gag so that yep. they can, you know, have it, you know, in their thinking process when you're trying to solve a, a problem on set. Yeah, because if they'd had two legit sets that they had to try and fuse together for that on the floor, there's just no way that would have worked. Yeah. As it was, that set already took up a full third of the floor space at 8H. So, yeah, they were certainly weren't going to uh, build it out further than they already had space to do. So mm. this was cool from a production standpoint. Very cool. It's neat to see the the camera following them in real time, you know, through the set. Everyone has to be very precise with their blocking for that kind of stuff. So uh, a lot of technical wins with this sketch. And I felt like it was just genuinely funny to boot. So this was a win for me. Win here too. Yeah. Good way to kick off the show. Let's take a look at our next live sketch. MSNBC's Morning Joe welcomes Russian lawyer Natalia Veselnitskaya to discuss the secret June 2016 meeting at Trump Tower. I don't know if this one's aging well anymore. Okay. I don't think they're giving it enough variance. Mm -hmm. It seems like they're sticking with the same notes that have worked for the sketch, but they're now a bit overplayed. Sure. They're drawing from the same wells, and I think they have the potential to branch out and, and explore other things with this format. But yeah, they just seem to want to go back to those few elements that they've already established, and I think it's starting to hurt a bit. Sure. Uh, yeah, it's tricky. When you have a really funny way into a character like they do with Joe and Mika because of their simmering romance, um, because they've got all of that, and it's so like rife for comedy i understand why they lean so heavily on it it would be nice like you said though if if there was something else there they could latch onto that was equally as funny that they could start weaving into it so that they didn't have to just be so one note with that i liked it though i thought that this was fun i, I just i think the characters are really strong it's kind of like donald and eric they're not reinventing it but because the underlying gag is so clever we can get a lot more mileage out of it than you can with some. So I was okay with it. I like Tina Fey's really bad Russian <laughs> femme character. So, you know, even though this didn't have any like super great standout moments, it was serviceable. So I'm, I'm going to give it a marginal win. Enjoyed it. Wasn't blown away. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I'm going to call it a marginal loss. Okay. No, that's fair too. You know, is what it is. Middle of the road material. Middle of the road. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's not dwell on it. Let's move on. We get a pre-tape. Tina Fey aspires to star in her new hit Broadway show, Mean Girls. I thought this was pretty funny. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody who works at Saturday Night Live has had to work alongside, you know, a different host for every show. A mm -hmm. lot of big personalities come through those doors. So while they have to do their job, they also have to stroke a lot of egos. <laughs> sure. Yes. That politeness you have to put on, even though this person's <laughs> out of their element. Yes. Yeah. The, the indulgences that you have to <laughs> provide. Yes, yes. You have to humor uh, your guest, even if they're completely clueless and just arrogantly naive about yeah. the whole process. Delusions of grandeur. Yeah. Yeah. So this just felt really real for that reason. <laughs> sure. I just thought it was a, it was a funny kind of situational gag. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I thought this worked pretty well. I enjoyed it a lot. It was trimmed down a fair bit from dress though. There was a lot more material um, that I thought 
a lot of it worked pretty well too that got uh, chopped between dress and live which is okay it's a tighter piece now but there were a few other funny moments that we'll never see the light of day uh but for what it ended up being i I still thought it was a a pretty solid outing i enjoyed tina fey's goofy sense of humor her little vibrato gag is just so corny (laughs) yeah there there was a lot of fun stuff here and it it was kind of cool that because she obviously has access to the rehearsal space for her broadway show and has access to her husband jeff richmond who can do a little talking head bit and laura got in on it because they were able to pull in a lot of fun stuff, Lin-Manuel Miranda and, you know, so much more. It felt pretty big. Like it felt like they really kind of went all out to try and make it special and get as many people in the mix to add a little bit of authenticity and just, you know, a little bit more cool to it. So I like that. And I like that they had a little callback there with, uh, Lin-Manuel putting her in the burn book at the end. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, I, I thought that was all pretty good stuff. So I, I like this. I, I, I thought it turned out pretty good. Absolutely. Yep. And I love how, uh, Adie and Cecily were kind of dragged along for the ride. <laughs> right. Yeah. Tina keeps referring to Adie as her best friend. Yeah. Yet <laughs> the subtitle under her name says work acquaintance. <laughs> yes. Those little things were making me laugh. Yeah. Tina Fey is actively deceiving them into coming out to be around her. And yet at the same time, she seems a hundred percent oblivious to the fact that they're not like genuinely close. Uh, yeah. There, there was something very, almost psychotic <laughs> about Tina Fey's character in this piece that, yeah, it worked. It worked really good. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Had fun with it. Let's take a look at our musical performances. Nicki Minaj performs Chun Lee. And then for her second number, poke it out with playboy Cardi. Where did you land on Nicki Minaj? Well, yeah, it was, it was fun, uh, fun performance. The second song was, was kind of cool. Didn't have a whole lot of Nicki Minaj in the beginning, but, she eventually made it out. That's all I can really say. Cause this isn't the type of music I listen to. I would never think to put on any Nicki Minaj. Mm-hmm. She's a total babe. I'll give her that. Okay. But, um, yeah, <laughs> this isn't, uh, this isn't my cup of tea. All right. But it was fun to watch. Uh, that is perfectly fair. And we'll just preface this whole section of the show by we are not, you know, hip hop aficionados. So take whatever we have to say with a grain of salt. It is just the opinion of two nerdy white guys from Canada. Yes. With that said, the songs were perfectly fine. I don't know what I liked about them. I don't know what I genuinely disliked about them. I just know that there was nothing about this that was really like rousing me or or that I was really getting into. So uh, I'm just going to say, hey, you know, it probably worked for a lot of people. It played well in the house. Everyone in the house loved it. But uh, yeah, I just wasn't feeling it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But that's okay. Yeah. (laughs) She's uh, she caters to a different niche and yeah and you know what Nicki minaj is going to be just fine she's doing okay for herself <laughs> so seems to be don't think she she needs my particular album sale so uh let's uh get off that let's jump into weekend update for their lead-in jost and che discussed the first anniversary of muller's trump investigation what'd you think of the opening salvo yeah i thought it was great okay so much saltiness going on <laughs> to to talk about with this one year anniversary right and I just thought they were killing it. This was a great way to end weekend update for the season. Yep. Jost and Che were playing off each other brilliantly. I just thought uh, this was really up to par and this was some of the best of the season. Yeah, it was good. It was definitely up to par. I have nothing bad to say about it. You know, there wasn't a lot of fumbliness. There wasn't any jokes that really bottomed out too much. It was solid. It just was solid, plain and simple. I don't know if it was the best of the season as far as I'm concerned, but 
we've had so much consistency with them that it's really hard to remember which ones were particularly great and which ones were just great. So, you know, this is great. This is fine. I'm happy with it. This feels very much like the reliable core of the show that week over week has been delivering. And that's all I want from it. So this was working great for me. Yeah. Yeah. I just love how it's Jost's fault that uh, (laughs) prisons are too black. Yes. Everything's Jost's fault. That's, that's half the fun (laughs) of their back and forth. Let's take a look at our first feature. Eric and Donald Trump Jr. discussed the 2016 meeting at Trump Tower. We were talking about how, you know, Morning Joe was kind of losing steam. Right. And you you could make that argument for this, but I think they're actually finding more stuff to do, even with the limited vocabulary of of these characters. Mm -hmm. You know, even the mimicry, they're finding new things to do with that, how he mimics the direction that... Donald Jr. goes when he goes to give him a high five. Right. It's taking what is familiar, but finding new things to do with it. Sure. And for that reason, it's staying fresh. It's staying enjoyable. And I don't even think it's getting old. I don't know how many times we've seen them. (laughs) Got to be more than half a dozen now. Easily. Yeah. And I'm still loving it. Okay. Very good. Yeah. It's not played out. Uh, I feel very similar. I'm not sure why, but they have staying power. It, It doesn't get old just purely because the the performance of Alex and Mikey just it, it's it just captures you it draws you in and you can't help but kind of like love the Eric character in particular with his childlike wonder and naivete it just it's funny it's just such a funny take on those characters that yeah they'll continue to be able to milk it hopefully long into the future uh, if Trump is still around in the fall <laughs> we'll see <laughs> I wanted to say though that this piece was a bit longer and dressed they actually opened it up a little different where. Eric comes in on Che's side of the desk by mistake. Like that's part of the goof is like, he can't even find his way to the desk properly. And then when Donald says, no buddy, you got to, you know, come over to my side rather than come around the back or come around the front. He like tries to crawl over the desk. So they had like a whole other little bit of shtick there to kick it off that they cut out probably for time or I don't know. It's, it played fine in dress. So I'm assuming that it was just an edit for time. Uh, so yeah, to your point, they are still trying to mix it up and find new gags that work with those characters. So I, I think there's still a little bit of life in this and this outing I felt was perfectly welcome. Yeah, yeah. you betcha. Okay. Moving on for our next feature, we get Keenan as Bishop Michael Curry discussing his lively sermon at the Royal wedding. I had a feeling that we'd be seeing Keenan do this. Yeah. I saw bits and pieces of the Royal wedding, but I did get a glimpse of this guy and he was very animated and <laughs> he really stuck out. Sure. Yes. It was a, a great characterization of it. Keenan is already a master of the licking the lips. Sure. And all those little ticks that he can bring to it. Mm-hmm. This was a really fun little bit. I like this too. Apparently this one came together very last minute. Uh, I guess Brian Tucker started putting this together like really early Saturday morning and they already had it all sorted out by the time that the show went live. So that's a a real credit to how quick the production can move. Even considering the uh, earlier sketch, the one where Prince Harry walks everyone through the reception, uh, both of those had to be still heavily in flux right up to the time address. So credit to them for really being quick with the costuming, quick with the writing. Yeah, that's that's SNL really shining when they can pull this kind of stuff together within a day. Yeah. Yeah. They're not lazy over there. <laughs> they do a lot of heavy lifting when they have to, and it's great. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I definitely respect uh, the, the hustle <laughs> this week. No doubt. Now, to round things out, Jost and Che do a little bit where they recite jokes that were deemed too offensive to do on air. 
I just love how they frame them all with, uh, see, yeah, you can't say that on TV. Well, they're, they're saying it on TV. Exactly. That irony helps sell the bits. That whole one-armed lady with the handcuffing bit, maybe I'm just a terrible person. I didn't find that all that offensive. That was just a funny joke. <laughs> sure. I like the the Boy Scout one. The Boy Scout, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's that's great. That That's almost a little Norm-esque in its misogyny and just the way that Che delivered it. So I, I thought that worked pretty good. Um, and then as a little capper, right before they exit weekend update. A.D. Bryant comes out dressed up as that lady that is now infamous for calling the cops on that black family that was having a barbecue. So this was not a bit so much as just a little visual nod to everybody that's up on that particular meme. And that's it. We are out of weekend update. All right. Back half of the show. We get a live sketch on TV's pervert hunters and entrapped scumbag embraces his role with gusto. Yeah, see, once you find out you're in a whole lot of trouble, it's really hard to be receptive to direction. Sure. Uh, makes for a pretty funny uh, concept. Mm-hmm. And I just loved watching Beck kind of lose his panic as he got more and more into the role. Yeah. And, you know, just became an actor's actor. <laughs> yes. He almost forgot that he was in trouble by the end and didn't even see it coming when he got tackled by the cops. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Yeah, it is a, a, a fun little peek in on what it would be like if you actually had a predator that was willing to embrace the role and really just run at it the way the producers want, like really just play ball and get in the moment. That's so far afield from what someone would be thinking and acting like if they actually were in the midst of being entrapped on live TV. So because it's such an unrealistic scenario, it's just a lot of fun to see it play out and watch Beck get more and more invested in it. Uh, I thought it was great. I I think that that's a really fun concept for a sketch. And I think they executed it pretty well. Like they found a lot of the sort of like actor tropes and like producer notes that you would expect to find in a real production. Like they had the moment where, Oh yeah, we got to cover up that logo, you know, zip up the hoodie and, at one point Beck gives him like three alternate takes on a particular (laughs) line. Like these are all very true of what you would find on a sort of fast moving production. So it was just kind of cool that they captured a lot of that. So anyone kind of in the industry is going to be chuckling at the realism of some of the little bits that they found to weave into it. So I liked uh, a lot of what was going on here. So I'm going to call this a pretty solid sketch for the back half of the show. Definitely solid. Yeah. All right. Let's keep moving. Sarah Palin has a musical message for all the people in the Trump White House. And we get an appearance from Fred Armisen as Michael Wolf and John Goodman as Rex Tillerson. What'd you make of this? A little bit of Broadway infused in the show, which I guess is kind of Tina's bag now. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how well this worked as a, as a whole piece. Mm-hmm. I know that Tina Fey is very well known for portraying Sarah Palin, but she's just not relevant right now. Sure. I just find it awkward to have her shoehorned in here just because of her popularity as a Tina Fey character. Yeah, that's fair. And yeah, there were some fun moments, but it was hard to get on board without really buying the whole premise in the first place. Yeah, it did seem like this was kind of obligatory fan service. It is her greatest hit character on SNL, so they got to figure out some way to bring it back. I don't like to be too much of an armchair writer because you know the the writers have enough to try and sort out with their their limited amount of time to produce these sketches but I kind of wonder they already had the like John McCain tie in with the Morning Joe she was John McCain's running mate why bring in John McCain's daughter 
when they could have brought in Sarah Palin to weigh in on the John McCain thing. And they could have taken that in a a whole nother direction. I kind of think that that was like our opportunity to wedge Sarah Palin in a little more organically. But again, I mean, hindsight's always 2020. So I certainly don't want to offend any of the the writers that worked their butt off last week, just trying to get whatever they could to air. So it's a thought, but I don't want to put too much stock in it. Uh, That said, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I I feel like they shot really high with this from a production standpoint. The song was catchy in and of itself. And I think everybody came to bring their best to it, but it did feel just a little uninspired, all things considered. And and that's a shame because they really did try to go big with this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it had some stuff going for it. Yeah. I liked having Kate come down from the ceiling. It's hard to be objective when you're watching it live and you see her rigged up in the ceiling before she comes onto air and you're like, Oh, here it comes. They're doing something fun. So like (laughs) I was really on board when I watched it the first time, but I'm trying my best to like rein that in and and just look at it as critically and as objectively as I can. I got to say, yeah, all in, they didn't find a whole lot of funny, like lyrically for the characters. There were moments, there were little lines that kind of landed, but nothing that just really ascended. So uh, to me, I'm going to call this one a a solid effort. And I think everyone on board was trying their best, but I just don't think it quite got there. So this is a loss for me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Moving on. Scissors and her mom, Roberta worked through some teenage angst during Livingston high's 2018 talent show. This was a very busy sketch for, how ostensibly simple it was. Sure. I just, I love the concept. Mothers who try to make a connection to their daughter, <laughs> but not anywhere near on their daughter's own terms. Sure. Yes. <laughs> it never works out well. And this yeah. is a, a prime example. Yeah. Long after the daughter has transitioned into independent finding their own identity kind of phase of teenagerness. Uh, her mom is still living squarely in the past. I, I like this. I thought this was delicious. I, I enjoyed how much they were able to cram in and how well the Keenan stuff worked. Melissa Villasenor, she was really giving her all to her performance. And I, I thought that her character was funny with the really like aggressive, awkward faces and like hyper jarring movements that she had like she had a whole character there that we haven't seen from her before so there was something original coming from melissa that i really liked but i still got to hand it to keenan as just really being the glue that that made this work end to end yeah the glue for sure (laughs) oh your enthusiasm (laughs) yeah holy the glue All right, so let's jump into our 10 to 1. We get a pre-tape Chicago improv, an unfiltered look at the cutthroat world of Chicago's improv comedy scene. This was a pretty funny connection to make. Mm -hmm. I mean, Chicago is obviously known for its big improv scene. They got the second city there. But yeah, there's been a uh, pandemic of Chicago fill-in-the-blank shows from Dick Wolf. Chicago Fire, (laughs) Chicago Hope, Chicago this, that, and the other. Yep. They're all over the television. Mm -hmm. So to take that style and apply it to something else, very Chicago (laughs) made some pretty hilarious scenes for sure. Yeah, this was a great mashup. This was perfect because kind of like you said, there's, there is a, a certain look and intensity and pace to those Chicago shows that when you translate it to the super low stakes game of amateur improv, uh, you can't help but like just grin at the 
uh, insipidly trivial things that these guys are saying, but how importantly it's framed in the scene and with the, you know, intense music behind it and the fast cutting, you, you get a sense that, that there's just so much more on the line <laughs> for these guys, yeah. uh, than's really going on. So yeah, that was fun. And for anyone who has either dabbled in the improv scene or is just a fan of sketch comedy and the, the community that supports it, there's a heck of a lot of truth in here from just the way everyone looked like Tina Fey coming out in her over overalls there was just so much the the dialogue a lot of the stuff where the, the one girl has a little emotional breakdown where she's trying to remind them all that we're on the same herald team and all of <laughs> all of the the fun little nuggets that they got in there for comedy nerds this is going to play really well for everyone else they're probably going to be scratching their head going what the heck was that but for what it's worth i really appreciate it i thought this was really good yeah yeah too much improv According to Improv Weekly. <laughs> According to Improv Magazine. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, credit to Tina Fey for the idea, but also to Streeter Seidel, Mikey Day, and Alex Moffat, who wrote the thing. And uh, Dave McCary, who shot it. I think he really got that overlap with the Chicago drama style. So uh, everything was working on this. I thought this was great. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely a good way to cap the show. And after that, we get a memoriam bumper for Margot Kidder, and that's it. We're on to the good nights. With Nere, a cast member in view. Yeah, they uh, they really built a wall. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that is our episode recap. So, you want to talk moment of the night? Let's do it. What do you got? I'm giving it to Fred Armisen's meant to be bit part. <laughs> sure. But it came a little bit more. Yeah. The first time watching it live, I was <laughs> so uncomfortable and just yeah. cringing for everyone watching and, and for Tina, for Fred. So yeah, that was definitely the moment that I kept going back to thinking about my moment of the night. Fair enough. Yeah, no, that was definitely a fun, cringy little moment. No doubt. I'm going to give my moment to Mikey day stalling at the rotating door in the Royal reception sketch. Oh, now, it really is only a moment for the people that were in studio and watched it and just seeing how clever that is. And then being able to go back after the fact and then watch it on TV and seeing how seamless it all was that as a production trick that just works so well with what you have to work with in eight age, uh, I felt was just super impressive and just really amazing to, to watch and set. And I know there's not that much to it. I mean, it's just a rotating door, but there's a lot of little things that have to come together to make that work. Like Mikey has to know how long to stall and he has to just kind of keep that dialogue going while it's rotating and then kind of organically know when to exit. So he has to be aware of his space around him and, you know, just actively kind of managing yeah. what's in frame. So, you know, that takes a bit of performance and, and production ability on his part. And then you need the stagehands doing it as quietly as possible. So you don't get any big clangs or bumps on the stage. Uh, so even though there was a little bit in the mix that you could hear, it still played really well. And then you just need the execution of the lighting, the, you know, the door just has to work, right? It can't get jarred in the moment. There's just a lot of little things that have to come together and everyone's on their game. And when it, it works like clockwork, I, I just, I got, a grin so that's my moment you're grinning i am grinning all right so best sketch i'm gonna give it to pervert hunters <laughs> okay i can respect that yeah that was a great sketch beck was amazing mm -hmm. yeah i just thought it was silly goofy and you know streeter and mikey that is what they love to do is is just silly goofy <laughs> stuff that would just never happen just because it was it would be too weird Yep. That is, uh, that's what they do. They do it well. And this is an example. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And it was definitely a standout as far as I was concerned too. I'm going to go with our opening live sketch, the uh, wedding reception. I just think that from a production standpoint, a lot of things had to flow really well with that because you're interacting with so many characters moving around that space so freely with what is actually a very big bulky camera and a very competent camera operator, (laughs) you know, maneuvering Mm -hmm. around there. Uh, You got the door gag, which I think played really well. And then you've just got a whole lot of performers that all just have to be ready to jump in and jump out of the scene and just, you know, service it, give it what it needs and, and keep the energy going. And that's tricky. That's harder to do than, than a lot of people realize. And actually I, I guess specifically, I like the dress rehearsal version of this sketch the best because there was also, uh, an intro and an outro where uh, an anchorman at the BBC was kind of leading you into the scene and leading you out of it. And that was played by Luke Nall. And he had a really solid British accent and he was really poised and he just really sold that part. And it was another good moment for him that we'll never see the light of day because for whatever reason, (laughs) (laughs) this dude just has the worst luck, but it was a good moment for him. It was a good sketch overall with a lot of technical merit and just a lot of fun things happening as you just kind of quickly pastiche through each of the characters. So it worked. I thought it was good. And so I just, I got to applaud the, the craftsmanship and the effort that came together on that one. Yeah, me too. Cool. All right. MVP. I'm going to give this one to Alex Moffat. Sure. Now he wasn't the all out star. This isn't a clear cut case of who the MVP is, Mm -hmm. but I felt that Alex was utilized throughout the show in a lot of different ways and a lot of different sketches. I think he had some of the most screen time. Mm Mm-hmm. He was uh, Prince William, he was Eric <laughs> Trump, and uh, he had a hand in writing a lot of the good stuff yep. that we saw. So he was a pretty uh, valuable dude. Yeah, this was definitely a good showing for him. And because you're going with him, I'm going to side with Mikey Day because it was down to those two for me as well. Yep. Behind the scenes, uh, Mikey Streeter and Alex got a whole lot of material on this week. That Chicago improv thing, that was their baby. The uh, Royal Wedding thing, I'm pretty sure was their baby. And I think the pervert hunters was their baby too. So yeah, they were, they were busy dudes this week Yeah, and uh, Alex was in the mix on all of that. And so was Mikey. And I just feel like, yeah, yeah. These, these dudes were neck and neck for screen time and really what they were bringing to the show. And uh, I think that, yeah, this was probably the most solid outing we've seen from Mikey in several episodes. So I, I think I'm ready to give him an MVP. Agreed. That's a, that's a good pair. Yeah. It seems like Alex Moffat is the new official, like third member of the Streeter Mikey duo. And I'm okay with that. Cause these guys are coming up with a lot of fun stuff. Awesome. Yeah. I fully support it. Yeah. Bodes well for next season. Mikey day, Alex Moffat. I don't see any scenario where they're not rep players by next year. Not that they're not all but rep players now, but yeah, I think they're due for a raise. I hope they get it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So the big question on a scale of classic, great, decent week or train wreck how would you rate this episode it's a tough call but i'm going with uh decent on this one okay and i really did want to give it a great Mm -hmm. it got pulled down a little bit by a couple of uninspired sketches yep which is unfortunate because a lot of stuff was really up to par but yeah those few sketches plus a musical guest that doesn't really hold my attention Mm -hmm. uh personally it probably falls around a decent. So 
that's where I'll fall. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, that's fair. I'm going to just lead off by saying I'm not objective. I had a lot of fun watching the show and I watched a different version of the show first. So there's a lot of things that are going to be tugging on my objectivity on this one. So uh, don't assume that this means anything, but I'm pretty sure that I'm going to land on a decent two with this one. I think that it was a mixed bag. Surprisingly so for a finale for having Tina Fey in the mix and for just seemingly having a lot of momentum coming out of the last several episodes. It just seemed like the back half of the season has been on an upswing and I I was really hoping that they would carry that through to the finale, but Hey, this is SNL and you know, sometimes it all just comes together beautifully and, and sometimes, yeah, it's a mixed bag. And this week I think was a mixed bag. Yeah. Yeah. Mixed bag is a good way to put it. Yeah. They had a lot of cut for time stuff. Like I, I think they were really shooting high. They wanted a lot of fallback options to be able to load the show up with the absolute best material. And I wonder if maybe they'd swapped in a couple of those, if maybe the show would have ended up being a little bit stronger than it was, but for what actually made it to air, I'm, I'm going to say it's decent. It wasn't a loss by any means. There was a lot of fun moments, but yeah, there was a couple sketches that dragged it down. So can't give it really high praise. Speaking of those cut for time sketches, though, there's a music video that's kind of a parody of the band Heim, which is well worth checking out. It's kind of a a message about how you always have your friends back, like when they're venting about an ex love or whatever. Uh, you just always side with them regardless. And it has Cardi B in it, dropping a rap in the middle. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And I'm actually surprised that didn't make it to air because I, I think that was a pretty solid outing. And they had a couple others. They had one that was the inevitable Laurel Yanni <laughs> dissection where Tina Fey's character, when she hears the Laurel Yanni clip, she doesn't just hear Laurel or Yanni. She hears the, the devil trying to persuade her to murder her coworkers, which I think is great <laughs> and dark and bizarre. Uh, so I, I kind of would have liked to see maybe that show up in the back half of the show. And they had a few others that were probably kind of take it or leave it. One that involved boogers being ousted from their nasally home by Nasonex. Uh, and then there was an HR meeting that goes south because the managers mix up their cue cards and they're not sure if they're talking about fire safety procedures, sexual harassment procedures or sales <laughs> techniques. So there was some fun stuff there. I think mostly they made the right calls, but I, I think I would have liked to see that Laurel Yanny bit make it in and the Heim parody I think would have been really solid in the show so you know the producers have to work with what they've got and you got to make the call in the moment I wouldn't want that job but uh, yeah I I think there was maybe the potential for a bit more if they'd managed to stuff one of these other ones in or or who knows you only got so much time you only have so much time that's true and again we don't want to veer into that armchair producer mode where we're poo-pooing the show when we have no idea all of the complications and factors that they have to weigh so SNL well done on season 43 I I think you guys turned it around in the back half it's a shame that we didn't go out quite on a higher note but still relatively solid outing and i was happy with it and i was super happy to see it in the house so hey thanks for existing and thanks for letting me in (laughs) (laughs) and uh that's a season thanks as always to steve finn and thanks as well to our most generous patrons sam bowers jonathan jordan and aaron and trader If you're enjoying our podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons get early, ad-free access to each new podcast episode, as well as many other exclusive member rewards. You can learn more about all the ways you can support the cast at snlafterparty.fm. We'll be back in three weeks with our Season 43 postseason extravaganza. But until then, this has been episode number 49 of the Saturday Night Live After Party Podcast. I'm John Murray. Good night, and have a pleasant tomorrow. 
Thanks to Nicki Minaj, Alec Baldwin. episode of our season and there were a lot of jokes we tried this year and some of them were uh, deemed too offensive to do on air. So we decided that since it's the end of the year, we're going to do some anyway. How about that? (laughs) The Boy Scouts of America agreed this week to allow girls into their organization because somebody's got to sew those badges on. Now again, (laughs) these jokes are offensive and that's why we won't tell them on air. We won't, these are ones we won't be telling.